Imagine looking up to a leader in your community only to find he's not who you think he is. He's a predator, a monster hidden in plain sight. This is the story of Father Hans Schmidt. Hans Schmidt was born on June 15, 1881 in Oschenburg, Germany to a Catholic father and Protestant mother. Early in life, it seemed the odds were stacked against him. He was born into a family with generations of mental illness and was also physically abused regularly by his father. As a child, Hans was obsessed with blood and gore as well as religion. He would often go to the local slaughterhouse and watch intently as the animals were butchered and was once found with the decapitated heads of two geese from the family farm. As he grew older, his interest in religion became so strong, he became a self-ordained priest in 1904. During the next five years, his history of sleeping with prostitutes as well as raping altar boys made it impossible to find a church in Germany that would accept him. He decided to move on and immigrate to America. Once in America, he took a job in Louisville, Kentucky. But due to friction with the senior priest at St. John's Roman Catholic Church, he was transferred to the St. Boniface Church in New York. Once there, he met Anna Allmuller, a housekeeper that immigrated from Austria. They would soon start having a sexual relationship during which time Hans was also having a relationship with a man who was a dentist in the inner city. Despite his transfer to a church in Manhattan, Anna's and Hans' relationship grew and they were soon married in a ceremony Hans performed himself. Not long after, Anna told him she was pregnant. After finding this out, Hans feared the secret life that he was living was going to be exposed. He claimed the voice of God came to him and told him Anna needed to be sacrificed. On September 2nd, 1913, the voices got louder and louder, so Hans decided to follow through with what God had been telling him. Hans slit Anna's throat with a 12-inch butcher knife while she was sleeping. He then proceeded to drink her blood and have intercourse with her bloody body. He then decapitated and dismembered her body with a handsaw, wrapped the pieces in newspaper, put the lower half of her body in a pillowcase, and threw everything in the Hudson River. On September 5, 1913, two youths walking along the shore of the Hudson River in New Jersey discovered a package containing the headless torso of a female body severed at the waist. The next day, three miles downriver, a pillowcase with a letter A monogrammed on it was found. Inside was the lower half of a woman's body wrapped in newspaper dated August 31st. Also inside both packages was a chunk of schist, a rock not often found in New Jersey, but common in Manhattan. Because of this, the evidence and jurisdiction was given to the New York Police Department to do the investigation. During the investigation, police were able to track down the manufacturer of the pillowcase because of the distinctive monogram it had on it. Thankfully, the manufacturer kept detailed records, which led police to an apartment in Manhattan. The landlord told police the apartment was rented by a man named Hans Schmidt, for a young female relative. Inside the apartment, police found the walls and floor splattered with blood despite a cleaning brush and bars of soap left in the sink. They also found a trunk with a butcher knife and handsaw hidden inside, and a second trunk that contained bundled letters and handkerchiefs. The handkerchiefs all had the same monogrammed letter A as the pillowcase had, and the letters which were addressed to Anna led back to the St. Boniface Church. Father Hans Schmidt was in shock when police came to interview him and after a few minutes confessed to the marriage and murder of Anna Allmuller. He claimed 
He did it because he loved her, and sacrifices should be consummated in blood. He was arrested and charged with murder. Father Hans Schmidt went on trial on December 7, 1913. Even though he admitted to murdering Anna, his lawyer claimed that Hans was overwhelmed with bloodlust and was too insane to be accountable for his actions and tried for the insanity defense. On the other side, prosecutors tried to show that Hans was a con man fully responsible for his actions. The arresting officer, Inspector Joseph Faro, testified that Hans admitted to buying the knife and saw on August 31st. Then, on September 2nd, crept into the bedroom and slit her throat while she was sleeping. When asked about how precise the cuts were on the dissection, Hans admitted to being a medical student before being ordained as a priest. Faro also detailed how Hans would pose as a doctor, often performing illegal abortions, and was found to dabble in counterfeiting money. After 34 hours of deliberation, the jury came back deadlocked. Two of the 12 jury members believed he was insane and would end up causing a mistrial. The defense, doing everything they can to save their client's life, suggested he be found guilty of second-degree murder. The prosecution rejects that idea and declares the state will try him again. On January 1st, 1914, the second trial began and was essentially a carbon copy of the first one. The judge made a plea to the jury to use common sense while making their decision and noted that not every form of mental unsoundness can excuse a crime. On February 5, 1914, after deliberating for two hours, the jury convicted Father Hans Schmidt of first-degree murder. One week later, he was sentenced to death via the electric chair. After many lengthy appeals, Father Hans Schmidt was executed on February 18, 1916 at Sing Sing Prison in New York. Because this case was such a media sensation, Hans Schmidt's nefarious life was under the microscope. Many items would come out about various crimes he was believed to be involved in. Investigators found that he had a second apartment which housed a printing press that made $10 bills. Those bills have an equivalent of $240 each today. He was believed to be the person that murdered and dismembered a nine-year-old girl found buried in the basement of the St. John's Church in Kentucky where he once worked, and he was also believed to be involved in the murder of a girl in his hometown of Oschenburg, Germany. To this day, he is the only Roman Catholic priest to receive the death penalty in the United States. So, do you like what you're hearing so far? Make sure to never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. The paranormal segment this week will be my own experiences, so I hope you enjoy it. The first paranormal event I can remember happened when I was a teenager. My grandfather was in the hospital. He wasn't expected to make it through the night. I had left the hospital earlier that evening, could not shake the feeling that I just never got a chance to say goodbye to him. He had had an aneurysm that exploded. He was pretty much in a comatose state. When we left, I hugged him. I said, I love you, told him goodbye. There was really no reaction, no movement, nothing from him. We went home and I went to bed. 
I remember hearing him say over and over again in a dream, I love you, I heard you. Around 2 a.m., there was a loud bang at my window. Sounded like something hit it, flew into it, not sure. I got up, I looked at the clock, looked out the window, didn't see anything, laid back down. About 15 minutes later, we got a phone call. It was the hospital calling to tell my family that he had passed. I truly believe that was him coming to me in my dream and banging at my window just to let me know that he was gone and that he heard me. As I got into my young adult life, I started getting into paranormal research. Now this is really what started my trek into the paranormal. I bought a bunch of equipment and started doing investigations. Every weekend I would go to Gettysburg, walk around the battlefield for hours. At that time you could be on the battlefield until 10 o'clock, so in the fall and winter months, I had a good five hours of darkness that I would just walk around the battlefield. Numerous times I had strange things happen with equipment. Batteries dying as soon as I turned on a camera. Camera not working in one particular spot, but moved 10 feet away, it was fine. There was all kinds of issues that I had. One time I recall walking around the base of Little Round Top. The grass was high and I was making my way up the hill. I heard walking behind me. I stopped, I listened. I'd hear a step or two, then it would stop. I'd start walking again, it would start again. And it did this for a few minutes. Stop, start, stop, start. Then this smell washes over me. It was the most vile thing I ever smelled. I don't even know how to explain it. The only way I can explain it is it was the smell of death. I remember a few times coming home from Gettysburg. I would get up in the morning and the back door to our place would be open. I'd put a chain on the door. I'd still find it open at times. And this would only happen when I came home from Gettysburg. One of the next events that I remember really well, we did an investigation on a house, and I'm not gonna get too far involved in other things that happened in the house because hopefully one of the people that lived in the house is gonna be a guest on the show, and they're gonna be able to tell you everything that they had happened to them. But this house had many things happen in and around the house. The family's young son was always talking about all the people that lived in the house that weren't actually family members. I remember one time at the house, I wanted to take pictures of the outside of the house, but had to go back inside and turn off a bunch of electric candles that were in the windows. So when I took the pictures, there was no lights coming through the house. When I came back down the stairs to go outside, the front door was locked and the barrel bolt on the door was locked. Now the only way to do that is from inside the house, and I was the only person inside the house. Another time at the house, my wife and cousin were with me, and I had just locked the door and was walking down the porch steps. I looked down at them as they were standing beside the car, and you could just see fear in their eyes, and they saw something. I said, what's up? What, what's going on? They both said they saw a ball of light come out of the closed window and fly around the side of the house. But the craziest thing that ever happened to me at that house was during an investigation. We were up in the son's room. We'd been up there doing base readings earlier in the night and the temperature and EMF readings were normal. I was at another area of the house when another investigator radioed me to come up. Something was going on. I got up there and as soon as I walked in the room, it was freezing. It was at least 20, 30 degree drop in that room from when I was up there earlier. Her EMF detector was just going crazy, lighting up and the alarm beeping. Then it would stop for a second, start back up again. 
I took out a regular old compass, just a magnetic compass. I sat it on the floor and it just spun in circles. I never saw anything like that happen in my life. We stood there in awe for a minute or two and then it just stopped. We left an EMF device up there for the rest of the night and it didn't go off anymore that night. Fast forward a few years, in 2007 we bought our current house. At that time my daughter was eight and my son was six. Before we moved in I spent a couple weeks prepping it to move in, painting, ripping up the carpet, fixing stuff so when we moved in we could just worry about getting on with life and not any kind of maintenance. Now our bedroom is on the first floor and we put the kids upstairs with their two bedrooms separated by a half bathroom on the second floor. In my daughter's room there's a little door on each side of her bedroom. They open up to cubbies that run the length of the house for storage since the attic is only about three feet tall to the peak of the roof. It was in this room that the first sign of having an unseen guest was brought to our attention. We were in the house for about a week when my daughter, she wouldn't stay in her bedroom because she was afraid. She said that people would be in her room at night and they came from the cubbies. I chalked it up to her finally having a room by herself and she was in a new strange house. We would keep telling her, there's no one in your room, everything's fine, we're just downstairs, but she fought us non-stop about going to sleep in her room. And it got to the point, we just let her fall asleep downstairs and carry her up to her room when she fell asleep. That's when we started to notice the cubby doors. When we would put her in bed, they'd be closed. But in the morning, we noticed that they would be open, about an inch. We assumed it was the wind blowing through the vents and causing a vacuum which would pull the doors from the magnetic locks and open it slightly. The doors themselves, they're pretty tight in the door frames and it takes a good bit of force to actually push them open. Not to mention the magnetic latch that would keep them from opening unless you pushed on them very firmly. Needless to say, we ended up having to put a hook and latch on those doors to keep them shut. A few weeks went by and my niece decided to spend the weekend with us. She was the same age as my son and the kids, they all got along really well. That night, we made a big bed on the floor of my daughter's bedroom with a bunch of blankets and pillows for the kids to all sleep on. We put the kids to bed and we went back to our bedroom and watched some TV. Around 2 a.m., we heard a bang upstairs and footsteps walking from one end of the room to the other, heel to toe, boot sounds on hardwood floor. Only problem is, we had carpet on the floor at that time. I went upstairs thinking that the kids were up. When I looked in the room, they were sound asleep. That's when I said out loud, look, I don't care that you're here. This was your house before it was mine. Just please don't scare my wife and kids. And for a long time, things settled down. We really didn't have many issues after that. Now we would still get the occasional odd noise or thing go missing, only to find it where you already looked later. But for the most part, everything died down for us but not for my daughter. She was visited almost every night by things we couldn't see, sitting on her bed, trying to talk to her, get her attention. She would just hide behind her blankets, hoping they'd go away. She didn't tell us for a long time because she thought that we wouldn't believe her. Now let's start talking about my dad. My dad used to laugh at me when I'd go up to Gettysburg to look for ghosts. He'd tell me they don't exist and laugh and joke about it. I'd just shrug it off and tell him, well, if something ever happens to me, I'm going to make sure I come back and prove it to you. Well, in 2012, 
He had an accident at work, and not long after that, he was admitted to the hospital, where he coded. They were able to revive him, but he spent a week in the ICU, intubated, and pretty much in a comatose state. We weren't sure he was even going to make it. He, however, did pull through, but during the course of all this, it was discovered that he had a rare genetic blood disorder, myelodysplasia, also known as preleukemia. It's where your blood cells are released from the bone marrow immature, and they don't perform as they're supposed to. There is no cure for this, and they gave him six months to a year to live. On Sunday, June 16, 2013, Father's Day, he passed away. And I had a really hard time with him passing. I never really got a chance to say goodbye. I didn't get a chance to see him in the hospital that day because we took my son to a basketball tournament out of town. When we got home from the tournament, I got a call that they were taking him in for surgery. He coded while they were trying to intubate him again, and this time he couldn't be revived. Now, here's the crazy part. After the last time he was intubated, he said that he'd never go through that again, and he didn't want to have that done again. A few days later, I'm pretty sure he came to let me know there's something else after we move on from this place. One night, my wife and I were in bed, just starting to doze off. There was a loud noise. It sounded like one of my kids falling down the steps. I got up and ran to the steps. Nothing. No one was up. There was just nothing. A few hours later, there was a very loud crash. Now, we had a baby gate at the bottom of the steps to keep our dog from going up to the second floor. I expected to see the baby gate had fallen, and when I got out there, everything was fine. So I went back to bed. A little while later, we heard the unmistakable sound of the dog gagging, followed by what sounded like vomit hitting the floor. Now, I had to be at work at 4 a.m., so when I heard that and looked at the clock and it said 2 a.m., yeah, I wasn't getting up. I was a jerk. I acted like I didn't hear it. I even ignored my wife elbowing me to get me up to see if the dog was puking. I mean, I did have to go to work in a few hours, so... She got up, the dog was sound asleep, nothing wrong. Now we had both heard everything that night. Not sure why he couldn't just appear to me, nope, just had to mess with me all night. The crazy thing was that week, not only did we have things going on at our house, my mom and my sister both had events happen to them. This is why I'm so fascinated with the paranormal. I've never had anything happen to me that scared me, just things that validate that there is another plane. We just don't die, we move on to something else. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Stuff of Nightmares podcast. Thanks for listening. If you would like to find out more about today's topic, you can check out our sources in the show notes on Facebook and our website at www.thestuffofnightmares.show. Like, share, and follow us on Facebook as well as subscribe and give us a positive review on your favorite podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have an experience that you would like to share with the show, you can either email me to admin at thestuffofnightmarespodcast.show or message me through Facebook. I am your host, Rick Ness. I will see you next episode where I hope to find out what keeps you up at night.